0: Hi everyone, it's David James Young here for another week of All My Friends Are In Bar Bands. The Farewell Tour begins here. Right here, right now. And I am very, 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 very honoured that today's guest is the person to be kicking off said Farewell Tour. Uh, Today's guest is Luke Steele. You will know Luke from his, ooh, 20 years now of being part of the public eye through a bunch of different bands, Uh, so Sleepy Jackson... Of course, Empire of the Sun, most famously, was also part of Nations by the River, uh, was also part of Dreams, was also part of H3000, uh, which was the album that Luke was promoting at the time of this chat, and now, by the time that it's come out, he's already on to the next thing. His debut solo album comes out in May. It's called Listen to the Water. But uh, prior to all of that, I got to talk to Luke about his ascent up through the Perth rock scene of the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, going on tour with Jebediah, all the way up to becoming a megastar at the helm of Empire of the Sun and playing the kind of venues that you could not even think fathom when you are first starting out some really incredible stories from over the years we only got a brief bit of time with luke but honestly i could have talked to him for another hour or so when i say so at the end i i genuinely do gush about luke at the end here because he has been you know musically a part of my life for so so long you know lovers is still an, an incredibly important record to me i love that first empire record as well i'm always fascinated as to what luke's is going to do next and this new solo record is very much the case you know can't wait to hear what he comes up with for this one love what i've heard so far in the meantime i would love to say a big thank you to mariam dib over at emi for helping to set this one up and a big thank you to paul mcqueda on the sound for helping to assist in putting this one together as well Thanks again for listening. Welcome to the All My Friends Are In Bar Bands farewell tour. We are on the road to the 200th episode, so let's kick it off in style. Here's today's chat with Luke Steele. A mark on my Hi everyone, I'm David James Young and all my friends are in bar bands. Today I would like to introduce you to my friend, Luke Steele.
1: Hello, hello. I used to be in a bar band.
0: <laughs> Way back. Yeah. <laughs> and what kind of uh, band would you describe the, the current one as? If not a bar band, where, uh, where, what kind of places would they be playing?
1: Oh, H three thousand. Yeah. Oh god. Something interplanetary, maybe. Yeah, maybe some weird AR VR kind of theater. Oh, and yeah. and, and in the new world, there'd be no one in there. Every.
0: Yeah, naturally. <laughs> <laughs> It is Thursday morning here in Australia, but it is Wednesday night uh, where Luke is over in the States. Uh, We were just uh, talking off mic about, uh, yeah, kind of moving to this new wild surrounds with your family. How long have you been US-based? Has that been pretty much since Empire of the Sun kicked off? About
1: 10... Over ten years, I've been here. Yeah, but um, I still got my Australian accent, right?
0: Yeah, surprisingly, yeah. <laughs> you you're not putting hard R's on stuff or anything. So, so far, so good. <laughs> it's a wild time to be releasing new music. But you've always been up for a challenge, and considering this is ostensibly your fourth debut album, I think that's always been something that you've been able to kind of adapt and evolve to new situations, new surrounds, new scenarios. Yeah,
1: well, I think I'd sort of, i like to progress and sort of just move on to new creative vibes. And it's hard because I'm in different parts of the world, you know, from some of the people I work with, me and Daniel, John's, you know, we're doing the Dreams record, but, you know, we live in other parts of the world, so we couldn't really yeah get going, you know, on the next record with everything going down. But I think I'm just so impatient as well. I, I love a lot of different styles of art and music and I'm really impatient that doesn't sound yeah. like doesn't sound like an artist at all, does it?
0: yeah no, nah, not at all, not in the slightest yeah. <laughs> So I begin these by tracing back the initial interest in music specifically where it changed over from being something that you were maybe watching on TV, listening to on the radio, et cetera, to transitioning into, well, this is what I want to do. I want to sing. I want to play guitar. I want to be in a band, that sort of thing. Can you tell me how music factored into your childhood and your upbringing and if there was kind of a switch-on moment for you?
1: Yeah, so my father's a musician mm-hmm. who's still gigging now, you know, in his Early 70s. And he's still the president of the Blues Club back in Perth. Oh, right oh. So he has been for about 25 years. Yeah, so I kind of grew up, you know, in pubs and in clubs and in beer gardens, you know, going to watch him and, you know, all of his blues band buddies and stuff. Yeah. And that would always come back to the house and, you know, there'd be a lot of parties and a lot of playing and stuff. So I kind of, yeah, was fortunate enough to grow up into a musical family.
0: Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were you and Katie getting into playing guitar and writing songs around the same time? Or was that kind of the age gap where it's just like you were kind of teaching her how to write songs? Like what was the kind of setup there?
1: I think it went down through the siblings. Like my older brother, Jess, he was in a band in high school. I think he was in year 11. His first band, Milk Milk Lemonade. (laughs) and um, They would all like screen print their own shirts and they would play this really dope kind of primus stuff and you know that was really inspiring because it was kind of like a gang hangout you know like bands in there's nothing better than bands in high school oh no it's so cool and the girls love it and yeah i kind of want to do that and then we you know we joined our first band which was sleepy jackson and then Katie, yeah, got into music from what we were doing. And, and same with my younger brother, Jake, who's known as Tobacco Rat now.
0: So the Sleepy Jackson was, was your first band. That was your high school band.
1: Yeah. Wow. We were called O'Hara's Saloon. That's <laughs> a pretty crap name. Before that, as a as a sort of jam band, there was a few other little bands before that have you know even worse names than that, so maybe yeah. we, we, we don't need to mention them.
0: <laughs> a lot's made of the isolation of Perth as a musical community, and obviously you know there was the Dockers something in the water back in the day, and just yeah a lot of attention around. WA music, especially in the 2000s when you and Katie were both kind of coming through initially. Uh, Like, growing up in and around that scene, like, what are your memories of going to shows early on and playing with other bands and stuff like that? Was there a sense that something exciting was happening or was it just, not taking it for granted necessarily, but just, this is just our lives, this is just what we do? It
1: really was an exciting time. That's when you know, Jebediah were first hitting and I just loved Jebediah so much. They were my favourite band. And they were kind of like the grunge Beatles, you know yeah. <laughs> There were so many shows Going on everywhere, everywhere was a venue It was There was the House of Wax I think it was the House of Wax I'd Just music stores, 78 Records All these music stores would have stages And, you know, a lot of pubs everywhere And you'd have those deals, ten bucks, four bands And, yeah, it was such a great time And me and my brother would go We'd go on the Datsun Hell yeah. 140Y with the, the fan belt kind of squealing And you know, we'd have enough for the cover charge and then enough to, you know, have one beer each or something.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Can't you be know, fine, yeah. but, yeah, just just getting by. Uh, yeah, totally.
1: And, we'd, talk, <laughs> you know, we'd, we'd talk and we'd critique bands and we'd talk about making it and, you know, it's right when Oasis was hitting as well, so it was a really deep culture in, you know, guitar bands and stuff. For sure, for sure. But, you know, the fun times, the real fun times before it gets too professional. <laughs>
0: exactly exactly well on that note uh when and where was the first show of whatever this first iteration of the sleepy jackson was i'm guessing that would have been like 96 97 like do you remember when and where it was
1: god the first show you know one show we had that was really bad was in that park in the middle of Northbridge. okay on the little stand there in the middle of the park. But I think it was probably the earliest I remember was probably back at the Grove, the CD launch of the Glass Houses EP. Yeah. I remember that really clearly because at the end of the show, I smashed a TV, I smashed a few guitars and a whole bunch of glass and it was everyone was like, encore, encore, but...
0: yeah how do you follow that like once you've done something as wild as that
1: yeah like those early shows were so great because it was just we knew you know obviously the music industry was a lot simpler and we knew that you know writers and photographers and people on the east coast would hear about shows and yeah so we knew we knew every show we did had to be like Hendrix or some kind of wild explosion
0: totally well yeah well i was gonna ask if that like literally performative aspect had always been a part of your music Because the first time i can ever remember watching you was at the aria awards when you performed vampire racecourse and you had like the dancers playing the the literal computer keyboards (laughs) you know like it was this whole elaborate bizarre setup i'm just like i've never seen Anything like this, and it was just so bizarre to me. I was like 13 at the time, I think. Oh, had that always? Yeah, had that always been like a part of how you were approaching like live performances instead of just the usual kind of punk, like plug in and play kind of thing? Were you always thinking like, okay, and then in this part of the show, that's where this can happen, you know, that sort of stuff? Yeah,
1: exactly. I think going through art school, I was really into kind of bands that had illusion you know i craft work they seem like they were robots and you know prints like where the hell does prince live you know or yeah. you know does michael jackson really do magic or i've always loved the illusion and mystery of great artists
0: totally um, yeah
1: so yeah i think that had a, a lot to do with it and i'm just so graphic the way i think about things like i love things being iconic like coca-cola and you know i like the memorable aspect of or something like that.
0: Do you remember the first time that the Sleepy Jackson went on tour? Like, yeah. even if it was just, like, through WA or maybe you were getting to go into state for the first time or something like that? Like, uh, how early on was that? Like, was that around the first EP or did that not come until Lovers? Like, what was the what was the situation I, I there? think
1: that was just before Lovers dropped, but I remember that really clearly because I'd just done three years at art school oh, and I was true. two weeks away from getting my diploma. And then... Kevin Mitchell from Jebediah was like, do you want to do a 25-day tour around Australia? And I was like, damn, I want to do that tour. So,
0: Oh, man.
1: I basically bailed out. I never got my diploma. (laughs)
0: Really? Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. That's so crazy. So, like, you you missed graduation, you missed the whole thing. You just flunked the classes and went. Yeah. Fuck. That's amazing.
1: (laughs) What was that tour like? Oh, man. I think that was probably one of the most memorable tours of my life you know because it
0: of course yeah
1: it's just so fun doing a long tour around you know the motherland and when you're that young you just you just got so much energy and everything's a party and it's nothing to worry about yeah (laughs) i remember when we got back as well i jebs would collect all the bottles left on the rider so all the vodka and wine bottles so i think it was the, the day we got back off the tour, Kevin said, do you want to come around? And I don't know, every artist will know once you get off a long tour, it's it's hard to get back, just be stationary. Yeah. So I said, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll come over. And then I think I stayed at his house for about a week, just <laughs> <laughs> just partying, listening to the to the Avalanches record and, Fun. you know, reminiscing. Amazing. I'm, I remember Kevin said one night, he said, I'm going to write out the hundred- 100 records that you've got to hear. And he... He sat there and wrote it on a bit of paper. I've got it somewhere still. Fuck, but, um, amazing.
0: Have, it, have you listened to all 100 records since?
1: I think so, you know. I think <laughs> th- There's probably a few, you know, he's always got a few kind of great obscure oh, yeah, skill ones that I don't know about.
0: Absolutely. Big love to, to previous guest of the show, Bob Evans, bloody yeah. champion, absolute legend. At what point did things start picking up for the band? Because when Lovers dropped, you know, like, there was obviously a lot of support from Triple J and, you know, getting Aria nominations, and stuff like that. You know, like, momentum kind of picked up pretty quick. But, like, had, were you kind of sensing in the lead up to that that there was momentum behind the band and, you know, there was this national and now international interest in in what the band was doing?
1: Definitely. When Lovers Drop was when it really took off. You know, it got released in 35 countries and we toured the whole world for years, you know. I still talk to journalists in different countries and they, they ask about yeah. Sleepy Jackson. I think there's such an excitement when you're that age as an artist. You're new, you know, you're untouched, you're dangerous, you're reckless and you can hear it in everything that you do. It's funny, we just got evacuated from up here because of the Dixie Fire and we, we went to this Airbnb down there. Um, North of San Fran And they had Siri in the room And I said Play Sleepy Jackson And a song came on God knows But it just took me back To that feeling and energy You have when you're younger There's something about You know That youthful fire That danger Just changes You know Over time
0: that would have been the first time that you toured internationally as well, I can imagine. What do you remember about taking the band out of Australia for the first time?
1: Yeah, I think I'm going I'm to have to write a book about this because it- we had so many wild adventures. It was yeah. kind of at the point where <laughs> you sort of look back and go, God, I'm glad we made it through, you know. Um, of course yeah wow we went twice around america in a little splitter van everyone was trying to relive the motley crew book you know (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely
1: everything is debaucherous and wild and you know as possible you know we'd we'd just sort of do everything you know yeah i can go on for hours but of
0: course yeah (laughs) I,
1: i think it was half the music and then half just Partying and being wild, but that was the American tour. But there was a lot of great European tours and things. So
0: I was always curious about what kind of happened there, you know, because personality drops, and then like two years later, Walking on a Dream comes out, and everyone's just like, "Oh, this is this is that new Luke Steele side project with the guy from Pernau," and and then it re- it quickly becomes. Oh no, this isn't a side project. This is like a completely new thing. And that goes on to more or less, you know, commercially, at the very least, like eclipse everything that Sleepy Jackson did. When all of that was, well, that transitional period was happening. Were you kind of thinking, oh, you know, I'll come back to Sleepy Jackson eventually? Or was it just one of those things where just, like, the past is the past? And, you know, like you were saying before, like, that chameleonic thing of just, like, okay, that phase of my life is done, now this is a phase of my life, and I'm moving on to this.
1: Yeah, it's funny, I I, I kind of like to leave the door open, because yeah. as you grow older, like, you'd know you your mindset changes and then you know sometimes years go by and then you look back and you realize what you loved about something so much like you hear it and you go oh that's why I love that so much in the first place and you notice the charm once you've had distance from it yeah I kind of just like to leave it open you know Like about five years ago, we cut the whole record demos at my place in New Zealand for the Sleepy Record, and then we worked with John Hill in LA for a while, but it it didn't really come off, so we've sort of come back to it a bit and working on some tracks, but yeah, we'll just see what happens, you know, but I think... That that's been an interesting thing, yeah. you know. Sometimes, sometimes the songs can demand the attention, yeah. you know, more than <laughs> more than your own personal plans. Yeah, kind of like how sometimes you want something to happen, and then God's like, Nah, it'll happen in five years. You know, you're just gonna have to wait. Yeah.
0: So that's it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, well, well, just to tie a bow on it, do you remember what? Like, what is the last Sleepy Jackson show that you remember? Kind of at the end of the cycle of the person record were, were you kind of realizing that you know that period at least for the time being was was done at that point or you know was that not even on your mind when the the end of touring was coming up for that record
1: yeah i think i remember it being in in sydney at a big kind of town hall oh true yeah and uh yeah it, it's funny because i remember playing the md of The record label John O'Donnell, I remember playing him Delta Bay and Empire Cut in the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) I remember saying, I've got this new song with this new project. Come and hear it's quiet, I'll play you this track. So it was already in the works as that was finishing off.
0: Well, yeah, to transition into that then, what do you remember about the first empire show or indeed shows like was that was that park life i think was the first empire of the sun shows
1: yeah that was park life and that was that was pretty terrifying i must admit because we'd we'd done yeah once the record was handed in and it kind of took off around the world we did you know months of press and we kind of built this show so big it was like you know bigger than vegas or something yes.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it came yeah. to
1: actually putting the show on it was like it's just this tiny bit of expectation here it has to be good and
0: of course yeah
1: there were so many different things you know because it was dance music it was you know there's a lot of track it's like it's sort of like doing a house show you know house music or something it was a lot you know more syncopated to what i done and sleepies and but yeah it went down really well you know after months of rehearsals and all of that
0: yeah I was gonna say like you would have had that kind of planned out pretty early on like were you like in simultaneously with creating the record were you already kind of visualizing it of in terms of just like so we're gonna be dressed like this and the video will look like this and then in the live show it's gonna go down like this like were you planning the whole thing as it was happening
1: yeah, quite a quite a bit, you know, like, I think it was just after we did Walking on a Dream at my studio in Perth, we went down to the beach and we started writing a script about what's going to happen in the Empire and what it's about, and that sort of dictated this sort of visual narrative.
0: The whole thing just kind of goes wild from there. Like, I can remember just the incredulity around, like, a lot of my friends, and it's like, The guy from the Sleepy Jackson is, like, the biggest pop star in the world right now, and, like, none of us had any idea what to make of it, you know? Like, you're hanging out with Jay-Z, and, you know, you're, like, appearing in all these TV shows and all these movies and stuff like that, and just, like these songs and this music is like it's it's subjective as to whether it's your best stuff but like it's definitely the biggest music and the most successful music that you've made like reflecting back on that era in your life in terms of touring and performing those songs and I guess creating a worldwide connection being seen as this overnight success when both you and Nick had been making music since like the mid to late 90s (laughs) Like, like I can imagine there's a lot of conflicting feelings and emotions and kind of overall thoughts that would come to your mind as all of this is happening but you know you don't fully get to process that until years after the fact so i guess with that in mind like how do you reflect on that very early era of empire of the sun now that the dust is settled
1: oh god yeah it's it really is like a dream the week that the record was coming out my daughter was born so I was Oh wow. Yeah, it was just you know, so I was in this whole other world of like how to be a dad and like this, you know, it was so amazing and then that taking off and then touring and I, I always said, you know, that the family is coming on the road, you know. So yeah, that whole you know, 10 years of touring, we basically t- traveled the world as a family. So it you know, it's, it's kind of great when you look back at the photo books and that cuz it's you sort of live that you know vacation around the world kind of thing you just want to bottle those memories right i guess that's why you have cameras and stuff but it's yeah. yeah it was such a wild time you know to to have that take off you know i guess i from being young i never had a doubt that something would take off but it's it, it's funny how it's always the project that you do for nothing as a as a side thing and <laughs>
0: Yeah, totally, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, of course. It's never the thing that you think, you know, it's like,
0: yeah, uh, like, yeah, exactly. Cause, you know, we're all thinking just like, oh, yeah, you know, sleepy, sleepy's doing pretty well, you know, and, and then th- something like this just comes and completely blows it out of the water. And, you know, that momentum continues like commercially for a while and you know you guys were you know very in demand festival act and stuff like that I'm I'm actually curious as to whether your approach to performance changed from context to context so going from a festival like this massive thing where statistically some people might be coming to see you that have no idea about the band or anything like that maybe know like one song or something like that someone very casual as opposed to playing you know these headlining shows where people know exactly what they're getting in for are coming specifically to see that and to see you and to hear these songs and stuff like that does your approach to the performance change, I guess, with that environment and that context in mind? Does it shift somewhat or are you have you always been the kind of person of just like, this is what we're doing, no compromise, doesn't matter what the scenario, like, this is who we are and this is what we do?
1: Yeah, well, it's... We've always built it, built the show like a movie, like a movie in real time. Yeah. So it's quite locked. You know, I've always done that. We spend you know three to five months building a show, and then we tour that. But the difference is in festivals; it has to be b- bigger brushstrokes. You know, when you talk to the crowd and the the nuances are are so different when you see artists and they're like how you do (laughs) it yeah it's so much more broader opposed to i I love the club shows because you can have that intimacy and people throw things on stage and you can talk to people in the front row and the energy's hotter because it's condensed and the you know the lights and lasers bounce off the walls and yeah yeah. But they're both good, you know? It's 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 like small wave or a big wave. Like, they both have such good things and I, I miss it all, you know? It's like... <laughs>
0: of course, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. Like,
1: talking about it now, I just miss so much of it.
0: I mean, the fact that you were, like, on the road pretty much non-stop for, like, you know, like you said, like a decade, like, even, like, the brief down period from... The transition from Sleepies into Empire, like in the grand scheme of things, wasn't that long. Like, you were out there for a really long time, like playing, playing songs to people here and internationally. Were there any particular points along the way where, you know, you felt like you'd kind of, hit a wall with it and you know like you were talking about that that sense of performing it like a movie and like the sense that i guess it was literally the same thing every night because it had to be and stuff like that were there any kind of points of frustration along the way in terms of your own performance and like what you wanted to get out of it initially not Being there, or was it more a sense of getting that revitalized every night when a new audience would come and see it for the first time?
1: Oh, well, yeah, I think I'm just always putting myself in the position of a young kid, yeah, who goes to see an act and it's their one time that they're there and everyone's there for a reason. So I treat it so seriously, and I think, yeah, you know, that's why I get so exhausted and. and Even though we toured a lot, we didn't tour, you know, a ton like some bands. And I think because it was such Mm. a big blueprint, the stage show and things. But I think after this last tour we just did right before the pandemic hit, it was a reimagined tour and it was basically looking back at the first record and then with the last couple of records combined in this big show. I think once that tour had finished, it seemed, you know, we have to put the crown in for some polishing and there has to be a little bit of a software download and, you know, restart kind of thing.
0: The last time I actually got to see you play was at the Opera House uh, for Vivid, which was the first time that Dreams had ever performed. And I think to date, I'm um, possibly the only time that Dreams had performed, knowing that both you and Daniel were, you know, these very eccentric and very outlandish kind of performance. Everyone was expecting something, you know, a bit wild creatively, but I don't think anyone really fully anticipated exactly what we got across those couple of nights, which was just such a surreal experience. Like, what do you remember about putting those shows together and, you know, getting someone out on stage for the first time in in years? That, That was such an interesting contrast of you who'd been out in front of thousands and thousands of people for years and years and years whereas daniel had been very very selective in terms of his live performances and i think literally the last time that he'd performed prior to this was his own show for vivid at the opera house so you know it was like very few and far between can you tell me a little bit about i guess those contrasts and what you remember about putting that show together and executing the show itself
1: yeah well that was a it was a bit of work putting the dream show because the record was so intricate and detailed and it had you know all these halftime vocals and then guitar sounds and you know it was quite elaborate, even though the songs are quite simple. It's quite yeah, you know elaborate and you know a lot of different angles. So yeah, we were in LA at the time and. I think Dan was pretty nervous, like you said, because he hadn't toured for a while. Coachella was the first one, and, you know, after a ton of rehearsal, it kind of went off without a hitch, you know, thankfully. Yeah. You know, it was great. We got to do things we hadn't done, like we had the classic American trash cans and we had sample triggers on them, so when you'd hit the trash can, it would trigger kind of crazy stuff. But Yeah, yeah. You know, just Dan's just such a enigma, you know. You think that he's shy and he's and then the minute he gets on stage he's just dangerous you know yeah. he, <laughs> you know it's like he's sure. a shark you know in a you know hanging out in a swimming pool and some puts, puts him in the ocean and, he's, and he just turns into like this captain jaws kind of thing you know yeah. he's he's really eccentric and you know we went deep on it you know we spent a lot of time on the visuals and you know making it feel like it was this kind of punk band from the future something Mm. Something no one's ever seen. Wish we did more, you know, but it's kind yeah. of maybe in the future. But
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you were saying before wanting to work on a follow-up for this record and wanting to do another sleepy record at some point. I- is it a kind of a curious thing, like, coming back to something after a period of being away from it and... I guess, contrasting who you were when you last made a record with the project and then looking at where you are now and seeing just, like, how do I connect to who that person was? Even if it was a couple of years ago, you know, like going from album to album can really feel like entering a different phase in your life entirely. Yeah, completely.
1: Like, there has to be a trigger point, right? And there has to be... Yeah. I don't know, as you get older, you realise that, it's all about the flow you know there has to be a flow going on what you're doing and try to make some stuff but right at the start of the pandemic Dan was like no I'm not a zoomer you know yeah and, yeah yeah you know and I think we both work better in the studio with all our pedals and stuff but yeah, yeah, that's an interesting question because we've had hundreds of conversations about the next process. You know, Yeah, I, I of always have this vision of getting a big house on the beach in Hawaii and having three or four different producers. And yeah, we kind of like that angle that Kanye does. How he sort of he'd hire out a whole level at the Mercer Hotel in New York. Oh yeah, and, <laughs> you
0: know, yeah, 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 yeah. After the Donda thing, we can get Empire of the Sun in the nearest football stadium and, and <laughs> see how that goes. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> why okay. not why not right. when you're young i feel like everyone has a very musicians at least have a very impressionable idea of what being in a band is like and what being a musician is like because we all grew up watching like rock biopics and documentaries about bands and all that sort of stuff and there's always moments within those kind of stories that we watch where the band had or the artist, or whoever had quote-unquote made it. You know, something happens as a click-over moment and, you know, they've quote-unquote made it. They've finally achieved what they set out to do at the start or whatever. And as trite and idealistic as that might be, I feel like deep down every musician has those little moments for themselves, whether that's getting to play a certain place, uh, play with a certain artist, get acknowledged in a certain way, win an award, going on a tour in a certain part of the world, anything like that. When you look back at what you've been able to do across your career. Are there any kind of things that come to mind in particular where it's just like, if teenage me knew that picking up the guitar would eventually lead to this, then they wouldn't believe me? (laughs) Yeah.
1: I think, you know, there's been a few different ones, but I think when we played the Hollywood Bowl and we actually sold out the Hollywood Bowl, I think for me that was just such a pivotal moment seeing it in the movies and knowing everyone from the Sinatras to the Beatles playing there and it was about 10 years earlier me and my wife-to-be went there and saw Al Green oh wow yeah it was just all these church groups from the south had come up and it was just incredible you know and being such an iconic venue and when we got to play that you know I think it was during Korea, the people I walked out and walked right around past the mixing desk and yeah, it was just, yeah, something that it's hard to explain how how incredible that was, yeah, you know. Oh wow. Yeah,
0: that would have been incredible for sure. Looking back at everything, again, like uh, reflecting on everything through uh, Sleepies, into Empire, into Dreams, into the H3000 record and everything that you've done as a musician, do you feel like the motivation to continue to make music and write music and perform music and then tour it especially do you feel like that motivation has remained the same from when you were first starting out as a musician or do you feel like the motivation shifts contextually as you get older
1: yeah it definitely does shift and i think i'm to be dead honest, I think I'm struggling a little bit now about what's actually happening. And I've spoke to, you know, I've, I work with a lot of different producers and and talking to them and also different artists. Everyone's sort of feeling the same way. It's like you're kind of trapped in this weird crypto, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, social media, psychology, brain wave, music revolution thing. It's just so strange. I, I, I kind of, I'm really struggling to get, my head around what's actually happening because you send some songs to people now and they're just too busy to even listen to it, let alone, you know, comment on it or, yeah, you know, but you send a picture of your dog, you know, doing a handstand
0: and,
1: <laughs> you know. 40, 40 To be 40 fair, that's very it.
0: impressive, yeah. <laughs> 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 Gotta work on your hands, sounds like.
1: <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's... I find it kind of really unmotivating at the moment.
0: Yeah, it's a very curious environment to be releasing new music in, but like at the same time, I can imagine it's kind of exciting to be in this moment of purgatory where, you know, you've made this record and you've done everything that you can, but no one can hear the whole thing yet and you, there's that kind of moment of anticipation waiting for, you know, that midnight drop and then it's out in the world and everyone can hear it. It's like, uh, what's kind of your mindset in the lead up to the release of this record?
1: I think that's the thing, you know, that the label wanted long release because they thought the songs are so strong and you don't want the big information social media monster to just gobble it up in one meal, you know. Yeah. You want him to just chill on it like he's got a big... Lambone or something. Yeah. And I think it it works because especially with the new app, you can get to hear what it is and gives people time. You know, having said all that, songs, you know, they, they all have their own destiny and they will find who needs to hear him you know yeah. like the other day some guy said to me i love personality of the second sleepy jackson record it changed my life you know and, yeah wow and, and you kind, you kind of feel like saying well it would have been great if you told me that 10 <laughs> years <laughs> yeah. ago when it, went, <laughs> when it came out yeah right but i think that's the cross you have to bear as an artist that you gotta just put your whole heart into it absolutely and not expect too much you know for sure.
0: All right, Luke, we- we'll wrap it up here. But before we do that, I ask this of all of my guests, and now it is your turn. I want to know about the best and the worst shows that you've ever played.
1: Uh, okay. Well, the best one, I think, would have to be that Hollywood Bowl show.
0: Yeah, That for we sure. did with
1: Empire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, 18,000 people sold out and just... Holy shit. Yeah, you know, my family was there, friends were there. It was just kind of like a, a memory, not only for me, but everyone um for sure and i think the worst show was maybe a sleepy jackson show we did at um i wish i could remember it's that venue in melbourne that's open all night
0: oh the corner
1: Um, no it has the couches and and it's a real long kind of hall has all the couches and that the venue sort of tucked in the side but we played there one time and i think i think it was the second song something went wrong and i don't know this is young luke but i just snapped and i just started destroying everything on the stage like i smashed my guitar and then i got the guitarist guitar and i smashed his and then kicked over a few amps and then ran into the drum kit and then everyone was standing there (laughs) with nothing to play (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> and how early into the set was this?
1: We were only like 15 minutes in. Oh,
0: my God. And,
1: then, and it was our headline show. And then I just Jesus. looked at everyone at the crowd and I was just like, I'm sorry, that that's going to have to be it. And I think it came in at... Fuck. With all the feedback, it came in at about 27 minutes. Oh, my God. <laughs>
0: that's <laughs> fucking wild. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> so,
1: Apologise to anyone that was at that show. But, yeah, yeah it was def- it, it was more like a... Um, Theatre art or something. Yeah. We'll put it down to that, like a Yoko a performance. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> well, here in Australia, man, we haven't seen gigs. I'll, I'll, I'll take a 27-minute feedback Sleepy Jackson gig over fucking <laughs> sitting in my room again for another couple of <laughs> months. I'll tell you that much. Oh, oh dude. The- yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, please uh, pedal your wares. Please plug the album. Tell us a bit about it. Yeah, well, I guess we'd been in Japan and I'd been
1: experimenting with all these vocal gender-bending kind of techniques and i met jared at the end of the dreams record and we you know just started pumping these songs and we both love kind of real high fire kind of hip-hop records and stuff like that and yeah it just sort of ended up being this i don't know pop in the future i guess like supernatural blue, sometimes i call it or kind of you know looking at a place in you know maybe year 3000 that was a bit like the acronym like heart 3000 or heavens 3000 what are going to be the issues like yeah yeah of the heart and yeah a lot of the songs are about that all of those issues that live in the catacombs of the heart
0: incredible well i'm very excited to hear it and i'm sure everyone else is very excited to hear it as well luke genuinely like as someone who's been listening to you for 18 odd years now like this is genuinely been such an honor to get to talk to you about all of this i could have you on for another couple of hours just telling sleepy stories but it's <laughs> like i really really appreciate you taking the time to speak to me today and uh, yeah thank you so so much oh
1: man respect thanks for thanks for the chat exciting you got my motivation back now
0: <laughs> that's what i like to hear man that's exactly what i like to hear thank you so uh, much
1: man all right respect
0: man i'm david james young and all my friends are in